Welcome to Mad Dogs and Englishmen. Um, Charlie, I saw something this morning. I don't know, the, the YouTube algorithm suggested to me. I didn't even look to see if it was a new interview or an old one, but I thought it would amuse you. Did you see when uh, Dave Grohl was on um, Jimmy Kimmel talking about becoming a friend of Paul McCartney's? I did not. I thought it would. Uh, I thought it'd make you laugh. It might have been recent. I guess his mother has some documentary out called uh, "From Cradle to Stage," um, which is she did a bunch of interviews with the mothers of other famous musicians. And um, it's anyway, it looks kind of interesting. But anyway, he was talking about um, becoming becoming friends with Paul McCartney, and um, so McCartney apparently wherever Dave Grohl lives, McCartney called him up one day and said he was in town and he wanted to come by because I guess the Grohls had just had a a new baby and McCartney wanted to come by and, and say hi. And uh, he tells this really funny kind of charming story about, you don't know how much beetle stuff you have around your house until you invite a beetle over and you're yeah. trying to hide it all. So as not to look like a, a, a stalker fan. But anyway, so apparently on his way out the door, uh, McCartney just uh, stopped and sat down at the piano uh, that he has in his house here and started playing uh, Lady Madonna, which I guess Dave Grohl's four-year-old had probably never really heard or didn't know. But the cute thing was the girl apparently like picked up a little uh, mug from the kitchen and put it down on the piano and like, put spare change in it like a tip jar, <laughs> 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 which I thought was really uh, very cute. Well, now so that you mentioned this, if you have the McCartney's over for dinner, you're going to have to hide a lot of stuff. I was going to say, I'm just looking around the room and within eye shot, if you will, I have a photograph book of the Beatles in America. Uh, all of their LPs, one of which is out, Sergeant Pepper, an original 45 of Penny Lane, Strawberry Fields. Mm. I have a book about the Beatles' first tour in the United States, a <laughs> biography of George Martin. I suppose that counts. Yeah, certainly. Uh, yeah. Oh, and I have the Beatles anthology book. You're right. It would be embarrassing. Yeah, you have some some stuff to hide. Uh, and I assume you have some Beatles sheet music on your piano. Nope, because I no. am lucky so enough to be able to just hear something and play it. Yeah, I don't have that particular skill. It takes me a long time to work through things. Uh, so, what should we talk about this week? You said you're writing a review of Joe Biden's first year in office, and it feels like you've been doing that for a year. Well, because the central themes here are all of his failures and here's what he should have done instead come up every yeah. day. Sure, yeah. And putting them in one place is probably useful, but I, it's not much new, is there, to, to say about the guy? Yeah, well, I guess there's a couple of ways to think about this. I'm always a little uh, conflicted when I write a piece like that because there are sort of a couple of different ways of thinking about a politician from the other side. And, um, of course, now I don't have a side, so they're all from some other side for me these days. But um, so when you're writing about Joe Biden, do you want to write about, well, here's what he would have done and should have done if he were a different sort of politician who more or less agreed with me on the issues and the policy questions, and this would have made the country a better country? Or do you want to write about, well, if Joe Biden is Joe Biden and supports the sort of things that Joe Biden supports, here's the sort of things that he should have done differently to try to get that stuff done? Or is it some other kind of piece? No, the last because one of the things one of the things I think about Joe Biden a lot, I suppose, that I've written about him is that he's, of course, he's a, he's a bad uh, 
president on policy questions. Just from my point of view, we just have different policy preferences, and that's that's fine. But he also seems to be politically ineffective mm-hmm. uh, from his own side, from his own point of view. He can't really get a lot of things uh, done, it seems. And that is surprising given that, um, even though it's closely held uh, control of Congress, his party does control Congress. And um, you would think they would get a few more things through. But then I think about 2017 and, you know, Trump comes in, his party's control of Congress and his number one issues really, you know, trade and immigration. Um, there's no legislative move on hardly at all. And um, the one big uh, piece of legislation that gets done is a very traditional old fashioned Chamber of Commerce, Paul Ryan tax cut bill. Yeah, so I, I'm more mean analytically for a couple mm. of reasons. Firstly, obviously, I don't like what Joe Biden wants to do because I'm a conservative and he's not. Uh, and second, because even within that, my advice would be largely useless to a Republican if it were based mm. solely on my own preferences because i think that almost everything the federal government does is illegal and should be abolished but if president desantis in 2025 called me up and said hey what should i do as president i'm which he will certainly (laughs) i don't know i'm not going to say to him abolish medicare so i'm looking at this analytically, and I think that irrespective of my own preferences, Joe Biden has made a series of profound mistakes that simply uh, have not tracked with where the American public is. Mm. And of course, the American public is far more progressive than I am, but it's far less progressive than Joe Biden I don't know if I want to say is, because I'm not sure he really believes anything, but has become. Well, let's just pretend that what he does out of habit is what he really believes. Sure. But he's he's a guy who was convinced early on by people who had an agenda that he should try to be something that he's not in a context he doesn't inhabit. Uh, He is not Franklin Roosevelt, and he doesn't have any of the advantages or impeti, plural, that Franklin Roosevelt had. He doesn't have large majorities in Congress. He doesn't have a public that is clamoring for radical change. He doesn't really even have a crisis over which to preside, at least not in the sense that the Great Depression and World War II represented crises he should have acknowledged early on that he had become president because he wasn't donald trump people were fed up with donald trump and they wanted what they for some reason imagined would be competent leadership uh, (laughs) during covid instead he allowed michael betchloss and others to tell him that he could be lyndon johnson if he really tried and for some reason he's proceeded accordingly and he's run into a brick wall yeah you know there you said something that kind of made me uh not disagree with you but maybe we should concentrate on this a little bit you said that people aren't in the mood for radical change i think they are in a sense that um there seems to me to be an impression 
uh, certainly among partisans on both sides, but also among a lot of people who are kind of in the middle and more independent minded, that the country requires some kind of radical change. Um, they seem to be um, emotionally ready or in mm -hmm. desirous of some radical change, but there's no policy uh, imposing some sort of actual radical change that seems to enjoy much in the way of widespread support. No, uh, you're right. There's no agreement. So we either. have a very radical mood, but no real radical agenda. I mean, there's radical agendas, of course, at the loopy uh, fringes of both parties, but um, there's no real appetite for something like the Great Society or the, or the New Deal, I think, in the, in, the general, in the general public, although they like talking that way. Like the Democrats have actually, I think, really got some traction by talking about their uh, environmental fantasies as a Green New Deal, because I think people just like the sound of the words New Deal. And there's some nostalgia for that um, early to middle 20th century sense of competence in government and, you know, shared national mission and that kind of thing. And I think people, at least they talk about um, sort of having a nostalgia for you know, shared sacrifice, like in, in World War II and, you know, victory gardens and ration coupons and, and all that sort of stuff. Now, I think they would get very tired of that very, very quickly if anything like that were imposed um, in the present day. So I wonder what you think. Is it just nostalgia or is there some kind of more fundamental dissatisfaction with the shape and direction of American society that people intuit but only respond to at a kind of emotional level rather than coming up with some sort of concrete program that they can rally behind well i i think the problem with coming up with a concrete program they could could rally behind is that there's no agreement on what should change and in fact uh, people of radical persuasions fundamentally disagree with each other as to which direction that radicalism should tend and so when i and look that's at that's true in that's true inside both parties by the way i think true so when there i look are, at go ahead please uh, the country i see essentially moderation because what i'm doing is i'm adding up the various factions and i'm arriving at stasis for example if you went to netroots nation now mm -hmm. and you said to an average attendee, tell me what we should do with immigration. They would say open the borders completely. And if you went to a nationalism conference and you said to an average attendee, what should we do with the border now? They would say close it. They would say landmines, I think, probably. <laughs> yeah. And that essentially leads to not doing anything. See, Whereas, I don't think it works that way, though. I don't think you get the canceling out effect. I think you get a sort of amplifying effect. I don't think if you take a, an electorate that's one half Nazi Germany and one half uh, Soviet Russia and doesn't average out to Switzerland. I think we disagree on this because I think you do in a huh. number of ways. First off, I think, especially with the filibuster in place, you have legislative stasis. Mm. Second, you have, what's the term that? political analysts use for this th th thermometer anyhow the point is that when trump comes in and says build the wall americans become more pro-immigration as a result 
And when Biden comes in and says, don't build the wall, Americans become more anti-immigration as a result. And so whichever figure is in power has engendered a thermostatic, maybe that's the term, reaction <clears throat> in the public that leads again to stasis. Let me see if I get this right, what you're saying. So you're saying when Trump comes in and says, build the wall, the electorate gets more Trumpy? No, the electorate gets, oh, gets less. less. Yeah. I think you said it the other way around, unless I mis mis misunderstood or misheard you. So you think that when the president comes in and, and presses in some direction, the, the country sort of instinctively shifts slightly in the other direction? Yeah, that seems to be what polling shows over the last 10 huh. years. That's immigration is a good example of it. Under Obama, people became much more worried about immigration. And then Trump came in and they became much less worried about immigration. Then Biden's come in, they become much more. Now, obviously, this isn't completely divorced from policy because uh, under Obama, especially with DACA, people were worried about illegal immigration for good reason. And under Trump, yeah. uh, with the build the wall stuff, people were worried uh, about restrictionism for good reason. So it, it, it does follow to an extent, but I think what you end up with is stasis. And uh, I think the reason I bring that up is that it differs from the Great Society or the Great Depression in that obviously you had division in the United States. But the division, honestly, in the New Deal was 70-30, often <clears throat> uh, 75 to... 25 in favor of say social security now do i like that no i don't think that the growth of the federal government in the 1930s was a good thing i don't think it particularly helped the, the problems it was designed to address and i think it has put our constitutional system out of whack but it existed nevertheless and as a result you saw dramatic change um that just doesn't exist now there there are very few questions that americans agree on 70, 30, 75, 25, and the ones that they do agree on are already the law, by and large. Yeah, I guess um, the button this is pushing in me is that the word stasis is related to the word stability. And the country feels unstable to me, instable, I suppose, um, instability, unstable. And um, it feels like the... Um, competing radicalisms rather than being um, mutually negating or mutually um, irritating that each makes the other one worse. Now, maybe as a matter of um, legislative outcomes that what you're saying holds at least for now, because we have a Senate, we have um, a filibuster, we have, you know, other sorts of things that are, um, wisely put in place to check the excesses of democratic passions of various kinds. But I think that perhaps in the long run, that's not what happens that, um, I mean, maybe you end up getting a radical and violent swing back and forth, which is what we already really see in presidential elections. Um, you know, a country that goes from, uh, Clinton to Bush, Bush to Obama, Obama to Trump, Trump to Biden, is a country that is um, on a pendulum, I think. And that's why and, we have a Congress. Uh, well, that's true. Um, but don't you think it's possible that um, you could see the same 
dynamic playing out in Congress, which does tend to swing back and forth, swing back and forth at least between party control. Well, uh, yeah, and that's why I'm such well. a, a fan of the filibuster. And I would just yeah. use this opportunity to hit my hobby horse, which is that <laughs> because the country is in the position you describe, and because, especially when it comes to the presidency, you can only elect one representative. In other words, we are competing to win one more vote than our opponents. You want to have a federal government that is weak. Mm. Because otherwise, you end up with a Biden or Obama presidency leading to angry occasionally totalitarian views on the right and a Trump presidency leading to that resist nonsense and calls to abolish whatever institution is unpopular this week and people doing primal screams in the quad at Yale. And really, and I understand that this isn't going to happen anytime soon, but really the election of a new president should not be that important an event. It should lead people who live in Florida to say, okay, I guess I still live in Florida. And people who live in uh, Massachusetts to say, hey, I still live in Massachusetts. And yes, you're going to have some profound differences over federal policy and those matter. But that's not how we react. How we react is Trump wins, Californians start saying, let's secede. Biden wins, Texans start saying, let's secede. Uh, thankfully, you don't see in either state a majority in favor of that position, but the sentiment does increase nevertheless. And what those states should actually be doing is working to limit their exposure to a president they don't like rather than um, hoping to, to break up the union. So, you know, I, I am pleased that we have a federal government that makes it difficult for presidents to get their own way and even congressional majorities uh, to get their own way. I do think culturally, you're absolutely right. It feels unstable culturally because people simply can't cope anymore with a politician from the other side winning an election. Yeah. Now, I know that you, um, you, you, you tend to arrive at your views in a kind of scholarly way because you are a bit of a scholar of these things and a and a, uh, a classical liberal at heart. But I have to wonder, um, was your sense of the importance of federalism intensified by the experience of moving from Connecticut to Florida? <laughs> I don't think so. I've been on this kick for a long time. But certainly, I like the idea in America that there are safety valves. You know. Right. So you're living in, when you were living in New York City. I mean, you had the same beliefs, and you understood this as a practical matter. I think, but as a as a day to day right reality of what your life looks like, certainly that must have been um, an influential experience. Yeah, of course. And it was always nice to know that because the federal government doesn't run everything, that you could move somewhere, be it Florida mm -hmm. or Texas or Wyoming, where things would be different. But of course, living in New York also instructed me that there are people in America, an awful lot of them, in fact, who profoundly disagree yeah. with my entire view of the world. And I also want there to be a place for them. You know, what, I went on a podcast recently and I made my pitch for federalism. And one of the hosts said to me, he was a little bit shocked when I said Massachusetts is fine on its own terms because politics is about arguing your corner. And it is. And I'm happy to 
criticize New York City or criticize California or criticize Vermont for some of the policy decisions they've made. But that's a different question from whether I think they should exist. And I'm absolutely happy with them existing, with, of course, a few exceptions which apply to every state. I I do think there are certain individual rights uh, and certain principles of equality that must apply everywhere. But beyond that, I actually don't care very much how Maine chooses to uh, conduct itself. Yeah, they're crazy up there, though. So, you know, I, I, I think about it this way a little bit. You know, I live in Texas, so New Jersey is not a foreign country, but I think that maybe our domestic politics would be a little more peaceable if we kind of thought of it that way. You know, I, I was writing about this the other day with um, the business with um, the tennis player getting uh, kicked out of Australia over the, the question of, of COVID vaccinations. I think that Australia's um, COVID rules are crazy. In a lot of cases, they are very heavy handed and extreme and draconian, I think, is the word people like to apply to them. But they are Australia's rules and Australia's business and Australia's problem. And um, at a certain level, you just have to acknowledge that and say, well, these are not things that I would choose in my own country, but this is in my country. Um, I was mentioning the case of, of, of Switzerland, which has just crazy aggressive rules when it comes to uh, traffic violations. Um they find some guy $325,000 for going 25 miles an hour over the speed limit. And uh, they deport people for drunk driving, that sort of thing. Um, these seem extreme to me, but if I were there, um, I wouldn't be, I think, all that full-throated in my criticism because it's not my country. It's not my rules. Um, you know, they make their own rules for their own reason. And I kind of wish in the United States we could mutually adopt a similar attitude toward particularly the states that are radically different from one another, or at least radically different within the American context. I mean, we think of Texas and New Jersey as being radically different from one another, but if you go to another country, you understand they're not. Sure. Um, they're, but they're radically different within the context of the American states. Yeah. Um, and, and you end up with yeah, people focusing on states they don't live in more than the ones that they do, sending money to candidates in other states, complaining right. about Indiana from Brooklyn when they're never going to Indiana. Right. Well, that's the whole thing about our politics right now is that they're very focused on hating the other side. You know, the only thing that people who call themselves conservatives currently have in common is anti-leftism. We don't like the Democratic Party. We don't like people associated with it. We don't like those kind of people. And the same is broadly true on the other side. Um, the only thing that the Democratic members of the Democratic coalition really have in common is that they hate Republicans, they hate conservatives, and they think that the country will turn into some sort of Taliban-esque, uh, neo-medieval hellhole if these people aren't, you know, kept out of power. Yeah. I wish they could understand how unambitious Republicans actually are. Yeah. <laughs> it would make them feel better. Yeah, I mean, that's a funny point, is that uh, Donald Trump's biggest sin was trying to retain power after he'd lost an election. Uh, it was not radically transforming the country. I mean, he he proved lazy and incapable of doing it. Thank God for that. Well, yes and no. I I think Trump's policy... His his laziness was his best feature. Well, it was. It was. Although, you know, I, I would have been happy within the strictures of our system and within the law for 
the Republican trifecta to have got a lot more done. Sure. Uh, I just think it's amusing that people look at Donald Trump and say, well, there's a workaholic, cold-eyed. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, you know, it's funny. Um, it's a little bit like when people are who are attracted to conspiracy theories, where they assume a level of competence, right. discipline, and energy um, among their antagonists that doesn't necessarily exist. And perhaps we're guilty of that, too, sometimes as well. You know, there are a lot of people on the right talking about these Marxist revolutionaries and things like that. Uh, I don't really see Joe Biden, you know, pulling off any kind of Marxist revolution. I think he'd be, I think he would find it difficult to uh, get breakfast after 11 o'clock at a fast food restaurant. You know, he's just not that kind of ambitious character. Um, he is not really there to upset the apple cart too much. He does like the prospect of spending money on his allies, but that's a pretty common thing among politicians. Yeah, a question I get quite a lot, often asked sotto voce, is, now tell me, who's really in charge? And I yes, say, I you know who's lot. really in charge? Joe Biden, and that's why it's going as it is. <laughs> yeah, my answer to that is, it's you idiots. Well, I guess, I guess that's true. But these people would say, well, I didn't vote for him. I did my best to, to avoid him. But um, I think it's an important point. There is often, I, I think this is human, but there is often a desire to look for complexity where it doesn't exist mm-hmm. and find an Iago figure. And to ignore it where it does. And they did this with Obama as well. Who's really in charge? Is it Valerie Jarrett? No, no it's Obama. Yeah. For better or for worse, the Obama administration was run by Obama. Now, no man is an island. Of course, they're influenced. And I think Joe Biden is probably more influenced than Obama was because he's a guy who has never had many ideas of his own. He's also old. Mm. Um, People but, talked about Obama being a Marxist, and I just thought that was impossible because he is never going to pick up an ideology that is named for someone yeah. else. <laughs> That's just against his character. You just made me think of something. You were saying earlier you wrote something and got you a bunch of angry emails. What was it? Oh, I, I argued on Monday that as an analytical matter, I wonder whether in 20 years' time, maybe before, Republicans will come to be pleased that they lost the 2020 election. Yeah. It's not advice to voters on how to think about politics. I don't think that voters should second-guess themselves and strategically try to lose elections. But I do think that it is beyond doubt that uh, from the perspectives of the interests of a given movement or party, there are sometimes elections that a given party should lose or win. You're You're going to lose some, and there are some that are better to lose than others. Right. For example, it is, I think, historically speaking, a good thing for the Republican Party that it lost in 1976. Because if it hadn't lost in 1976, Gerald Ford, who was a good man, would have won. He would have presided over many of the same disasters that Jimmy Carter did, and there would have been no Ronald Reagan. I think it was a bad thing for the Republican Party, not that the result was ever in doubt, that it uh, won in 1928. If the Democratic Party had won in 1928, had been in power during the Depression, the Republican Party would probably not have been locked out of power for a quarter century. And Mm -hmm. you can do the same thing with the Democrats. The Democrats were thrilled 
when they won the 1892 election with Grover Cleveland. But doing so was an absolute disaster for them. Within a few months, through no fault of his own, the economy collapsed. The Democratic Party split as a result over the question of populism. The Republican Party united because the Democratic Party was in power. And the Democrats didn't win another election until 1912, at which point Woodrow Wilson came in only really because the Republican Party ran two candidates um, with Teddy Roosevelt instead of one. I mean, there are good times to lose even though no party ever should try to or want to lose. And if you look at where we are now, I'm not suggesting that everything that is happening is beyond the control of Joe Biden, although a lot of it is. Mm. And I'm not suggesting he hasn't made things worse. And I'm not suggesting uh, that, for example, the Afghanistan withdrawal debacle was not his fault, or at least his responsibility. But as we know... The American public is dissatisfied with COVID and its attendant ills. And they were dissatisfied with COVID under President Trump to the point at which he may well have lost that election because of it. And COVID is still here and people are still dissatisfied. And now they're angry with Joe Biden. And neither Donald Trump nor Joe Biden could actually do very much about that. But I think Joe Biden thought he was going to come in. The vaccine would get to work. COVID would disappear, the economy would bounce back, and people would say, wow, thank you, Joe. Mm. That didn't happen. Now, just put... I believe I wrote a column to that effect uh, in January of last year that Biden picked a, a good time to uh, come in because the vaccines were there, economy was bouncing back, all those things turned right. out to and be wrong. Everyone thought that. It was totally rational. Now, again, mm. I think that some of the spending that we saw in March and the checks and the extended unemployment benefits have made inflation worse. But I don't think the inflation rate would be 1.5% right now under President Trump. So you have to look at the likely headwinds, as the cool kids put them, that Trump would be facing had he won. You have to look at how the Trump administration would be covered by the press, which would be more keen to blame COVID on him than it has been on Biden. And then you just have to look at the normal cyclical trends that presidents of either party tend to face in their fifth or six years in office. And the reality is that if Donald Trump had won that election, he would now be blamed for 800,000 COVID deaths. There'd be no counterfactual to point to and say this would have happened under Joe Biden or whoever. He would be blamed for inflation he would be blamed for the supply chain issues. He would also have done a whole load of stupid stuff that he never got to do because he wasn't re-elected. And his approval rating would be dipping, dipping, dipping. Republicans would be likely to lose even more seats in the Senate, which might in turn have led to the abolition of the filibuster. They would lose even more seats in the House. And by 2024, it would be plausible that the party would be on the cusp of a landslide election a la 2008. And I just think that although you never try to lose an election if you're Donald Trump or Mike Pence or the Republican Party writ large, maybe they chose a good time to lose one because it seems to me that Joe Biden uh, is not benefiting from the latent environment in which he now finds himself. Yeah. You know who I think probably thinks they picked a good year to lose? Who? Ron DeSantis. 
Oh, the, sorry. Um, you mean the Republican Party chose a good year to lose? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah sorry, I was going to say, I was trying to work out when he'd lost. Yeah, so what's your read on this, Kevin? Do you think that DeSantis should say, to hell with it, I'm running whatever happens if he wins re-election for governor and wants to be president? Or do you think he should wait, as some people have suggested? Um, I think if you want to run for president and you intend to run for president, you should say so. Um, in fact, I, I wrote a piece uh, a couple of years ago that was uh, not well received, but um, I still kind of like the idea that um, I think it would be a good idea for someone like DeSantis to um, sort of preemptively name a cabinet and say, this is the government you're voting for. And uh, I think that would be a not at all bad way to uh, to run a presidential campaign, you know, not just as a uh, me and my vice president. But me and all the senior members of my administration that I'd like to bring in, that doesn't actually, you know, concretely commit you to doing that. But it would give the electorate a good idea about um, where you want to take things. And it would also give them a lot of people to vote for. Um, There are a lot of people who might be sort of on your side, but you're not their first choice, but they really like the person you're picking for X, Y, or Z. It's weird because... The one example I can think of in which a presidential candidate did that, he did it in a way that hurt him and then didn't follow through. And that was Biden saying he was going to tap Beto O'Rourke to be his gun czar. Yeah, but that was just kind of one person. Right. But I'm saying, insofar as this has ever been done, it was badly done. It would be good to see it done properly. Yeah. Um, I think even if if you take it back to 2016 and you've got Trump, uh, you know, if Trump's running in 2016 and you are a Kevin Williamson, Charlie Cook type conservative who is horrified by the prospect of this guy becoming president. But if it looks like, well, you know, the secretary of state is going to be someone I trust and the secretary of treasury is going to be someone I trust and the vice president is going to be someone I trust. And the uh, principal economic advisors are all going to be National Review staffers, which is how it turned out. And uh, and that's, well, not all of them, but several of them. Uh, I think that might have actually done him some good um, because you would have a better idea of what kind of overall administration you're voting for rather than just being asked to make a judgment about one person. And he did a form of that by releasing a Supreme Court list. Yeah, that's true. And that was uh, that was and probably helped him win the election. I'm, uh, I'm in two minds about this. Yeah. I'm in two minds about this because I, I, I think it's an interesting idea and I would like to see this too. I, I do think with Trump that conservatives violated a good number of the, and you're going to say, of course, uh, a good number of the principles that they had previously pushed um, in that it is true that Trump was hemmed in by having good people around him. But if you take that too far, you're actually you're actually endorsing or condoning an executive branch that is not run by the president. Mm-hmm. And I mean, if you end up saying, well, I'm not worried about foreign policy because he has nominated a good defense secretary and secretary of state, and I'm not worried mm-hmm. about 
you know, the Treasury. But, well, okay, but conservatives are supposed to believe in presidential accountability and in the idea that all of those people and all of the bureaucrats in the executive branch ultimately answer to the president, who is the only one of them who is elected. Yeah, I, but I, I think maybe that's a that's a strong version of the assumption there. Yeah, I don't think the assumption that if, you know, Donald Trump's running for president and Condoleezza Rice is going to be secretary of state, that Condoleezza Rice is going to be running 100 percent right. of American foreign policy. But it gives you an idea of what his priorities and values are, who he's going to be listening to, that when he's deferring, this is who he's deferring to. Uh, when he's delegating, this is who he's delegating to. That might give, you know, some some ideas. One thing I think about this might be particularly helpful Republicans is, um, you know, I don't I don't spend as much time with Democrats. I don't know them as well. So maybe I'm um, singling out Republicans in this way. But Republicans are kind of crazy about some of this stuff. So I'll hear all the time from people who say, well, yeah, Marco Rubio is great on 99 percent of the issues, but I could never vote for him because I don't like him on sugar subsidies. Or, you know, Mitt Romney is great, but I just I could never support a guy who did that with health care in Massachusetts. Or I like DeSantis, but I could never support him for this one thing. I think having more of a slate, mm-hmm. you know, kind of election uh, with your cabinet more or less in place would um, mitigate some of that tendency. People to say, well, OK, Rubio wouldn't be my first choice. But if we're getting X, Y and Z into the deal, too, maybe I, I can yeah, work that out. I think that's a good point. By the way, that attitude is common in the Republican Party. What mm-hmm. I found so annoying about it recently is that I am not of that view in general. Yeah. And that I am happy to vote for Marco Rubio because on balance, he's in line with what I want from my senator. He's also very wrong about sugar subsidies. Yeah. I- I'm happy to vote for Ron DeSantis for governor because he's broadly in line with what I want out of my governor. He's very wrong about big tech. Um, there is, though, uh, a but that I have in my mental map of politicians that is insurmountable, and that is Donald Trump, who tried to steal an election. Sure. And when I say that to people, they say, yeah, but you agree with him on this, 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 and this. And I say, yes, but this is disqualifying. <laughs> and then they move on and say why they can't vote for Dan Crenshaw. And you think, oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> so you can't vote for him because of this thing he said in an interview with Esquire. But the president who tried to steal an election, that's just fine. <laughs> Yeah. Fun stuff. So um, are we going to amend the Constitution so you can run? or because I am an electable voter. We've talked about I will this. come out of voting retirement to, uh, to cast a ballot for you. Thank you. You would be one of about nine people. I think you'd win Texas. You wouldn't really need my support. but um... Well, I would win Texas probably if I were the Republican candidate. Mm. I just have i mean other than this unconstitutional i don't want to do it i i just have none of the put it this way i think as i'm sure everyone does when they look in the mirror that if i were parachuted into it somehow that i would do okay (laughs) one of the things that i used to think a great deal during the trump years was that i could not believe that this man that anyone could live in the White House, walk around, look at those portraits, sit where Lincoln sat and behave like that. So I, yeah. I think the sheer weight of the history would would push me into sobriety. But there's no way I could ever get there, even if I wanted to, because just think about what I've written. Just think about my radical views. Just 
Think about my accent. <laughs> that would kill me from the outset. Yeah, yeah, I, I thought the same thing about Trump that um, that this would change him when he was actually I did. sworn in, and he didn't. But um, well, if it makes you feel any better, um, even though you're constitutionally disqualified, you're probably still more electable than I am. Yep, that's probably talk, true. Talk to you next week. <laughs> Bye.